0: portion of Scripture today from Genesis 47, 13, all the way down to the, the end of chapter 49. Um, we are coming to a close in our series on the book of Genesis. I'm kind of sad. Is anybody else sad about ending Genesis? Um, I have so enjoyed the book of Genesis. I've loved the ability to see God in a different light. Um, the same God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, um, the God who is consistently patient, kind, and faithful. And so it's been great to see Scripture come alive. So turn your Bibles to Genesis forty-seven, 13. Um, we're going to be reading it throughout the message this morning instead seven at the beginning, but let's pray together now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that reveals who you are to us, that reveals your character, your nature, how you deal with man, and how we can respond to you. Lord, thank you for your word which reveals you. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning, help me to preach this morning, and help those who listen to hear from you, to be attentive to your words. Father, I pray that it would be effective, that we would see your faithfulness through Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. If I, I love good biographies, and I love good stories about um, great men of old, and that's why I've really enjoyed the last few weeks, especially as we've gone over the biography, really, of Jacob and Joseph, and so I was thinking about it, I I was wondering, you know, how would you like someone else to write your biography? How would you like somebody else to write your biography? And if they were writing your biography, what would you want them to write? What would you like them to write about you? What would you not want them to write about you? I'm sure everybody's aware of something in their minds right now that you wouldn't want written about you. What would you like them to write about, the story of your life, your your decisions that you made, the places you went, how you failed, and how you trusted God, how you treated your family, your husband, your wife, how you worked, the relationships you had, the relationships you missed, your defeats, your accomplishments, what would they write? What would someone write if they were writing your biography? What would you What would you want them to write? Those two things may be different. There's been a lot of unfavorable biographies throughout history that I'm sure the people who had them written about them would... Would not be so happy to have them written that way. What if the, the person writing about you knew everything about you? Wouldn't that be a little frightening? What would you want them to write about? Certain things perhaps and, and not others? You know, in, in our story this morning that we're going to read, Jacob must have been proud of some of the things in his life. But at the same time, he must not have wanted some of those things to be written in I bet he would have preferred some things to be forgotten. He probably wanted to highlight his return to Canaan and how he came back to the promised land and how he trusted God. Possibly he'd want to point to God's provision for him and his, his 12 sons and their whole family. And He would definitely highlight Rachel because throughout the story, Jacob always highlights Rachel. Maybe he would want to promote his faithful service for her, but at the end of his life, he'd probably be ashamed to some degree of the way he treated Leah. And the sons uh, that he, he treated, treated poorly and instead favored Joseph and then Benjamin. You see, Jacob was, he was a very weak and flawed man, wasn't he? He wasn't some, some super, superhuman man throughout the pages of Scripture. He was a very real human being who struggled in very real ways. He was weak and he was flawed. He failed and he had success. We see the rough edges, the bad attitudes, at times, and the failures, the occasional triumphs, but not a lot in his life. Imagine the sons of Israel if they were reading their own biographies from Reuben and Simeon and Levi. I imagine they would have felt similarly about their lives and they, they all lived mixed lives that were full of good things and full of bad things, and some of them really bad. Simeon and Levi, they were rightly incensed by the rape of their sister and they took justice into their own hands. They took vengeance on a whole village and slaughtered them, mercilessly. Reuben was trying to secure a place of leadership. He slept with his father's wife. His, all the brothers—they lied. They failed when it came to Joseph. They deserted him. Joseph's life, if we look at his story, it was an exception to some degree, wasn't it? And it was—you think, wow, this was great. But even he, as he was looking back at his earlier days, was thinking, "What a bonehead I was! I shouldn't brag so much about those." Those dreams that God gave me, I was so proud. Most of our lives are mixed. Most of our lives are filled with some things that we're proud of and other things that we would rather that history forget entirely. We'd rather not highlight. We'd rather not our children remember them. Most of us have some regrets in some form. Unmet expectations. Maybe almost living up to what you hoped you would achieve. But to some degree, falling short. All of us, if we acknowledge it, all of us, if we're humble, all of us, if we're honest, are frail, weak, and flawed individuals, much like Jacob. Even the best among us are still weak and frail from time to time. How would you want your biography to be written? What would you want people to write about you? We see in Genesis 47, 13 through the end, really, of, uh, of chapter 47, the final strokes of the pen on the, on the life of Jacob. The story of the generations of Jacob, they really began back in chapter 37. And, and then Jacob's life story began back in 27 of Genesis. And there's a, a large degree of Scripture spent on Jacob. And as you go through the pages of Scripture reading about Jacob, and I encourage you to do that perhaps this week. Go back to 27 and read all the way through. you'll find you can really identify with this man. You can identify with his life because he wasn't perfect. He had some great success, and and then the next week he had rotten failures. And if you were going to summarize, if you were going to sum up all of Jacob's life, if you were writing Jacob's biography, or perhaps as you're reading from 27 down to where we are today, how would you summarize it? We could focus on a lot of things, couldn't you? But I would submit that you, you probably could say one thing that would really summarize all of Jacob's life. is that Jacob trusted in God who called him. Jacob trusted in God who called him to keep him all the way to the promised land. If there was one consistent thing, even though Jacob failed, he always came back. Even though his faith was weak and it faltered at times, in the end it could be said of Jacob that he was a man who trusted in God. The God who called him to keep him all the way to the promised land. The main idea we learned from the passage this morning is that we can trust in God. We can trust in God who's called us. We can trust in God who's called us to keep us all the way to the promised land. We can trust in God who's called us to keep us all the way to the promised land. And isn't that good news for us? Because in this life we may not see that that place. Jesus may not return Before we die. And yet we can trust that God will keep us. Because he's called us. And we can trust in him to keep us. All the way to the promised land. See the life of Jacob. Is not meant to point to him as this. Grand hero except for one thing. There's one thing. That scripture highlights about Jacob. The fact that he had faith. In his ever faithful. Covenant keeping God. What was so grand and noble about Jacob. He had faith in his ever-faithful, covenant-keeping God. He had faith in God who's over all. He had, he had faith in the faithful redeemer of his people. His, his biography's not pretty, is it? It's helpful for me, it's helpful for us, to see how though God works in and through the life of a really flawed man and his flawed descendants. And that should encourage us this morning, that God is a faithful God who works In our lives, because we're flawed. And he'll work in the lives of our descendants as well. His biography is meant to give us hope, not in ourselves, but in the faithfulness of God. And and even though Joseph's story that's intertwined with the account of Jacob, it's, it's meant to point us to hope, not in ourselves, but in the faithful God as well. You see, Joseph is a good example to some degree. But he's a good example of what a life dependent upon God looks like. Joseph was a great man. But why was he a great man? Because he depended. He depended upon God. He trusted in God. But but ultimately, even his story is about God, isn't it? In the end, what mattered in Joseph's exemplary life, because he did have an exemplary life compared to all of his ancestors before him, but in his life and in Jacob's life, what mattered most, it was not all those flaws and foibles and failings, I should encourage you this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm very flawed, and I have lots of foibles and failings and weaknesses. What mattered most in their lives, what matters most in our lives, what can be said of us, and hopefully when our biography is written, what can be said of them, can be said of us, is that we faithfully depended upon God who called us, who would keep us all the way through to the promised land. The count this morning it begins with really these final scenes of Jacob's biography, and we're meant to learn from this biography as well. In the covenant family, they've moved to Egypt; they've relocated already. The famine has continued. Joseph is still the prime minister, effectively of Egypt, and we see him carrying out his role faithfully. So let's look down and read God's word together in verse thirteen of chapter forty-seven. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all of the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes, before, before our money is gone? And Joseph answered, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die. The land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and all, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your lands for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Listen to this last verse. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. That one little verse depicts such a contrast between the Egyptians and the people of Israel. It also paints a portrait, really, of how God used Joseph and his faithful service to not only preserve Egypt, but to provide extravagantly for Israel. You see, in the face of famine, Israel was not selling their land. They were prospering. They were not giving themselves up. They were being fruitful and multiplying. But how did that happen? It was because God was using Joseph's faithful service, and He provided through that faithful service. And that's really the first point we're going to look at this morning: is that God provides through faithful service. God provides through faithful service. Sometimes God intervenes supernaturally. Sometimes in, in ways that are just unfathomable. So we, we look and see the people of Israel and Exodus, and God provided for them manna. He, he gave Moses a staff to strike a rock, and water came out. That was, that was pretty spectacular, but that's not normative throughout Scripture. How does God normatively Supply the needs of his people? How does he how does he normally provide for his people? Just like he did through the life of Joseph. It doesn't seem very spectacular, does it? If you're thinking, well, Joseph was just doing his job. And in fact, Joseph, man, why did you like set up taxes? Twenty percent taxes? Woo! That's terrible. Thanks a lot. But but he was being faithful. He was being a faithful and wise servant. And God provided for his people through faithful service. You see, it says God's people just go about the normal activities of daily life, faithfully serving him that God provides. It doesn't seem spectacular, but see, God is at work in and through the faithful work of his servants. Turn your Bibles for a moment down to chapter 49 and verse 22. Chapter 49 of Genesis, verse 22. This is Jacob's prophetic blessing on Joseph. But in this blessing, I want you to catch something. He reveals who is behind. Joseph's faithful service and the blessings that come as a result. Genesis forty nine twenty two. look down with me. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. And here's the key. His arms were made agile, not by his own strength. His arms were made agile, the word says, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you. His arms were made agile. By the mighty one of Jacob, by the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. And how do these blessings come? These blessings come really as God enables Joseph to just be wise, as God enables Joseph to be faithful, to serve. And through this faithful service, God provides, but ultimately it's God who's behind the scenes working to enable. It's God is the one who is strengthening Joseph's arm. It's God Almighty. And maybe you are thinking, there's no way I can be faithful at my job. i got a lousy job. There's no way I can be faithful as a mom. There's no way I can be faithful as a dad. There's no way I can be faithful in what God's called me to do. And yet we can see in this verse, it says that the mighty one of Jacob is the one who made his hands arm's agile. The God of his Father who will help you by the Almighty. Who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Maybe you're doubting your ability to be faithful. Maybe you're doubting your ability for God to provide through you somehow. And you're thinking, this doesn't make any sense. I can't see how it's all going to work out. I want you to be encouraged to the life of Joseph. Yes, Joseph was a great example. But it wasn't because how great Joseph was. You see, the only reason Joseph was great at all was because God made his arms agile, the mighty one of Jacob, strengthened his hands, the God of his father who will help you. And that's our hope this morning. Maybe you're looking for provision. Maybe you're looking for God to make a way. Maybe money is tight. Maybe, maybe you're looking for God to provide for your children. Maybe you're looking for God to bring your children to him and yet in every way God will provide through faithful service and he calls you to trust him and to diligently serve. God had been at work in Joseph's life in in seemingly non-spectacular ways and it's the same mighty one of Israel. It's the same almighty God who will strengthen your weak hands. It's the same one who makes your arms agile. You may not feel very agile right now. Some of us feel less agile than others. Um, I'm not going to point that out to any of the guys here, but I have a few few guys that I could probably call out right now, but um, few guys are less agile than others, but it's God who provides, no matter how you feel. For the Christian, it really speaks as well how we can view our, our employment for unbelievers. You see, Joseph was working for a pagan. He was working for Pharaoh who who viewed himself as God. How in the world could it be good to set Pharaoh up for success? Joseph, though, was diligent and faithful, and God blessed him through serving a pagan king, a pagan Pharaoh. And like Joseph, we, we should seek to be a blessing, not because our employers deserve it or not because we're serving godly people, but because it's how we worship God as disciples of Jesus Christ. How do we worship God? How do we worship God as disciples of Jesus Christ? We worship him through faithful service. No matter what our boss or employer is like, no matter what condition we find ourselves in, but we don't do it in our own strength. We don't do it in our own ability. We do it trusting in the almighty God, the one who's for you, the one who'll bless you. We see that Joseph had wisdom not only in his management of the affairs, of Israel, he had wisdom in how um, he dealt with the people of Egypt and he was really worshipping God as the grand vizier of Egypt he was worshipping God in his employment I should encourage you, you're thinking "Well, I don't have a, a vocation that's really noble really? Joseph worked for a pagan pharaoh his vocation was very noble whatever you find your employment in this morning, you can be encouraged that God has called you to wherever you're at and God will enable you. And it's not about exactly what you're doing, it's about how you're doing it. Are you trusting in God? Or are you being a faithful servant? That's what is noble. And that was, it was what was noble about Joseph as well. Whatever God's called us to, we can worship God and demonstrate that we're His disciples by how we work. Do we serve God wisely and faithfully in our jobs? Now look down at verse 27 of chapter 47. And flick back a couple chapters. Something astounding I mentioned a minute ago. Although all of Egypt became indentured servants of Pharaoh, all the Egyptians gave her the possessions. The Israelites actually gained possessions in Egypt. And it has this little throwaway phrase almost. It says, they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Do you you notice that language? They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Do you remember back earlier in Genesis when God gave a command to Adam? He commanded Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful and multiply. But they didn't do it. They weren't faithful. They, they, they weren't fruitful. And they didn't multiply in the ways they should have. And He gave the command again to Noah and his family. He gave the same command, be fruitful and multiply. And, and then we see here this just brief mention. God's doing something incredible. God's doing something incredible here. You see, God has made him them fruitful. And God has multiplied them greatly. God did in them what he commanded man to do. God fulfilled his own command in his own people. That's our hope for us this morning as well, is that when God gives us commands, he's going to enable us, and he's going to bring it about. He's going to bring those commands to pass. And then we see in the next account, in verses 28 to 31, Jacob's making Joseph swear that he'll be buried in Canaan. He asked Joseph to place his hand under his thigh, reminiscent of of Abraham in Genesis 24. And Jacob's using this really as a, as a modest reminder of the covenant that God made through circumcision. And he calls them to remember the promise of God as he promises to Jacob. Let's read together in chapter 48, 1 through 20. We'll read this large portion together. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength, And sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. As Reuben and Simeon are mine and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are those? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here and he said, bring them to me, please, and I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God who my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life to this, long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and then let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude into the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. (laughs) Oive, He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. We can see in these verses what God is doing. It's something that God often does. You see, God is, is choosing the undeserving. And this is the second thing I want to highlight for you this morning. is that God chooses the undeserving. God chooses the undeserving. In blessing Joseph's sons, Jacob was recalling God's mighty hand, he was was conveying on them the status of all of his sons with all the rights of the inheritance that his sons deserved. That's kind of astounding. Wait a minute, These these are boys born to the daughter of a pagan priest in Egypt. And yet God is using Jacob to choose them so that they might be adopted. That's what he's doing. This is an adoption ceremony. So they may be adopted and have the same status as all the other sons of Israel. And then he did something squirrely. He he crosses his hands. And and Joseph's probably thinking, my dad's senile. He's losing it. Or or maybe he can't see right. And, And yet he's not. God is using Jacob to mix things up. Because God calls people who are undeserving in the world's eyes and undeserving in the world's way of thinking. You see, in that day and age, it would have been common for the firstborn to receive the rights of inheritance. And likely, Joseph had prepared Manasseh all his life. He's probably about 20 now. Even though they're sitting on his knees, it's a little hard to figure that out. But there um, was something to do with the ceremony of adoption, which is why that was the case. But he, he probably had been prepared all of his life. And so you see that Joseph's a little incensed by this. No, not so, my father. Switch hands, this is backwards, this is not the way it should be. And yet, God uses Jacob to choose the undeserving Ephraim, the younger, and switches things up. He was crossing things up, turning human convention around backwards. same time, he was also removing Joseph's ability to bestow the right of the firstborn on Manasseh because he adopted them. They were no longer considered Joseph's children. He was shaking things up, he was turning things upside down and backwards although it was a great blessing it must have come as a shock to joseph and he wanted to set things right but jacob jacob empowered by god and and somehow given a word from the lord he crossed things up and he knew what he was doing and isn't isn't it like god isn't it like god to cross things up to to turn human convention upside down and on its head and backwards and, and bringing about his plans. And doesn't, doesn't God do things in his own way? He doesn't do things according to human tradition. He doesn't do things according to the people who you might think are deserving. Who we might think are deserving. He doesn't choose people who are deserving their own right. He chooses people who are undeserving. And then God adopts those who had no right to be adopted. And that's the good news for us this morning is that God chooses us who are undeserving and God adopts us as his children to receive the inheritance along with his son, Jesus. He's chosen you and I, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, for salvation. And he's adopted you as a son to receive all the rights of inheritance just like these sons did. And, and he's, he's called you who were undeserving, who in your own right didn't deserve To receive the inheritance. And he said I want to give you the inheritance. God's blessings are by his divine choice. And they aren't related to earning. That's what this is meant to show us. And he he blesses the sons of Joseph. Not based on their merit. And instead of merit. Merit is a result of his blessings. Ephraim and Manasseh had done nothing. But yet we'll see later on throughout history of Israel. That um, because of the blessings of God. Um, they were able to have merit and carry out this prophetic word. Paul asks in the New Testament, What do you have that you didn't receive? Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph. He crosses his hands. He, he turns things around backwards. And that's how God often works. He, he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us his favor, he gives us his blessing, he gives us the right to be called. Sons and daughters of God. He gives us an inheritance. When turn your Bible for a moment, please, to 1 Corinthians 1. Flip over there just for a moment. I know we're doing a lot of flipping back and forth. You can hold your place in Genesis if you will. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Sometimes we feel like things that are not. (laughs) Thanks be to God. It says, She chose even things that were not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts boast. I mean, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. The good news for us is that God chooses the undeserving. And that's our hope today as well. We weren't deserving in our own. And that, that's good for us because we can't undeserve God's favor either. If God's chosen you, if he's called you, if, if you desire to respond, to repent, believe, and place your faith in Jesus, that means that God has chosen you, that God's been at work in you. That God wants to give you his inheritance. That God wants to adopt you as his sons and his daughters. You can't earn God's favor because everything we do on our own is tainted by sin. And if God's presence can bear no sin, then nothing we do can gain any merit before God. If everything we do on our own is tainted by sin, God's presence can bear no sin. That means it's hopeless for us to, to gain any merit before God on our own. But there's good news here. There's good news here in the story of Jacob choosing the unworthy, the unlikely. There's good news that God chooses people who had no merit. God chose you and I. We don't have to earn merit before him. We don't have to earn any favor. We can trust that Jesus suffered in our place for all of our sins. And we can trust that we who are completely undeserving can be accepted by God completely. Completely and entirely. You may not feel deserving this morning. And that's good. But you can know that God's chosen you. And because he's chosen you, you have merit. Not because you've earned it, but because he's set his merit on you. He's set his favor on you. Because he's chosen you. The other good news that we're briefly going to touch on from this passage, the third point really is that that we're going to see is that God holds the future. God holds the future. What is Genesis meant to show us? What is the story all the way from the very beginning of creation? We we see the sovereign God who's over all, the sovereign God who created all things. Who man messed things up, but he didn't mess up God's plans, and he didn't thwart what God was doing. And throughout everything, throughout man's faithlessness and failures, God holds the future. Back in 1988, there was a movie called Big. Anybody get to see that movie Big? I'm not endorsing it. I can't remember what was in the movie except for a few basic basic things. But in 1988, the movie Big, it was a story of a kid named Josh Baskin. Um, He's a cute little kid, but he was unhappy with being little. He got picked on. He didn't like things the way they were. and He just wanted to be big. He just wanted to be a grown-up. Just wanted to be, Just wanted to be an adult. So he goes to this fair and he finds this arcade game on this remote area of the fair, and it's got this Zoltar speaks with this weird little chin that goes up and down, cock, cock, really bizarre. People on, who are listening on, on audio are going to think something just happened, <laughs> a seizure or something, or what was that? Um, he goes to the fair, he finds this arcade game called Zoltar, and, and it supposedly grants wishes, and, and so he, he goes and he puts a coin, he doesn't know that it's unplugged, and he's kind of slamming it, and he makes his wish to be big, and then... The next morning he finds that he's gotten his wish and he's huge. He's, he's Tom Hanks grown up. And he enjoys his, his, if Tom Hanks is grown up, I guess. But he, he finds his, he finds freedom and riches after a while and he enjoys it. And he enjoys this newfound freedom. But in the end of the movie he realized that he was wrong. And he, and he, he makes a wish to go back home and be a kid again. Because he, he realized that he really didn't know what was best. And, and he, he really didn't want the future that he thought he wanted and the future that he thought was best for him really turned out not to be in the end. You know, so often we're kind of like that little Josh Baskin kid and we're, we're thinking that we know what's best for us. And we think that we know what the best future is for us. And we think, if I could only have this, God, then everything would be okay. God, if things could only be like this, if the future could look this way, then everything would be okay and I could trust you. And yet, like Josh Baskin, things don't always work out so well for for us if we were to get our way. But we don't need to wish for things to be different in the midst of life being unstable and not understanding where things are going. Last week we talked about being in Egypt, and sometimes God calls us to an unknown place, an unknown land, and calls us to go to the land of Egypt when it doesn't seem right. How could that be good to leave the promised land? That doesn't seem like a good future at all. And yet, God knows what he's doing. Even in trials and hardships and famine, God knows what he's doing and God holds your future. You can trust in God. You don't have to strive to make your own future. You can trust that God really does know what's best. And then you can see that in chapter 49, we're not going to have time to read all of chapter 49. You can breathe a sigh of relief for a moment. It's okay. Um, But in chapter 49, verses 1 through 28, we see that Jacob is he's on his deathbed and he's pronouncing blessings on all of his children. And, and really, this, these are prophecies about not just who they are currently, but he makes a prophecy about who they will be. And, and we see that if you look throughout the history of Israel, that all these prophecies, to some degree, in some way, they, you can see how they've, they've come about. But there were hundreds and hundreds of years after Moses who couldn't have known how they are going to come about who wrote this account. You see, before Jacob had said, hadn't said anything about Reuben's sin, and we can see in the first few verses of chapter 49 it was clear he didn't approve. He says that Reuben is unstable like water. He loses his place of preeminence and leading, although he'd still be strong and powerful. Simon and Levi, they would not share the glory of Jacob, and both their anger and their wrath would be cursed, and they would be divided in Israel, and Levi, we see, would have no inheritance. And it came true because we know that the, the tribe of Simeon all but disappeared. And the, the tribe of Levi, they were intentionally scattered throughout the nation of Israel because they were priests and they didn't have their own land. The blessing on Judah, it was, it was longer. I'd encourage you at some point to go back to chapter 49 and just see the, the, the blessings that God brought about. Some of them don't always seem like blessings, and it's blessings in the sense of God is blessing them by telling them what's going to come about. Sometimes it's not always so happy. The blessing on Judah was longer, longer than, except for Joseph, and not only was offspring lead, but it would dominate his enemies, and the prophecy about Judah also speaks of him as a lion's cub. Kind of makes you think about someone later who would not be a lion's cub, but who would be the lion of Judah. Jesus and how the scepter would not depart from Judah. This is really messianic language that we see, language about the Messiah that we see in these verses. And it tells of Judah's offspring ruling, ruling until, in in the Hebrew really the word is there, until Shiloh comes. And what is Shiloh? Shiloh is the man of peace. Until Shiloh comes and, and to his offspring it says would be the obedience not just of the sons of Israel but of all people. Isn't that a beautiful prophecy of Jesus until Shiloh comes? And the obedience not just of the sons of Israel but of all people. And then you have this idea of a massive vine about Judah that you can tie a foal and a donkey to. It speaks of really a big vine that produces wealth and prosperities. And this descendant is so wealthy that he washes his clothes in wine instead of water. I'm not sure how that's good unless you want all your clothes looking red. But it just means they were so filthy rich they used wine instead of water to wash their clothes in. And they had more milk than you can ever want. So much milk that their teeth were just glistening white. It's a little too much milk for me, maybe. Unless it's a new whitening treatment system, I don't know. But um, you can look in Ezekiel twenty-one twenty-six. It refers to that verse really and expounds on it about the Messiah. God's people, they needed somebody to lead them. And Joseph, he led God's people. He cared for them. But Judah really stepped up among the brothers to lead his line would lead the family for generations to come, and Judah and his earthly offspring, they would not be the perfect leader until Shiloh came. Really Jewish commentators from the earliest time, they, they recognized these verses, and Christians from the earliest time, have recognized these verses as speaking of the Messiah. For us, we know that Christ Jesus, the Lord, who is Shiloh. The man of peace has come. Messiah, the peaceful one. And then we see later in, this, in, the, in the prophecies here, Zebulun would be enriched by the sea trade, and Issachar would be given a heritage of agriculture, but one would be forced into labor, and maybe it refers to Israel's years in captivity and foreign rule where they had to pay tribute from the produce of the land. And it talks about Dan being a judge. We can see later in the book of Judges, Dan was implicated in stealing Micah's idols, and in Revelation 7, Dan's not included in the tribes of Israel, maybe as judgment for their sins. We see Jacob praying, though, for the salvation of the Lord at the end of Dan's prophecy. Jacob spends very little time on Gad and Asher and Naphtali. They barely get a sentence each. Gad would settle between Israel and Jordan. He'd be the victim of border raids, but he would also raid as well. Naphtali's blessing, it it, it means actually he he would have beautiful words. And and it's probably referring to the song of Deborah in Judges 5. And Jacob gives a wonderful blessing on Joseph, part of which we read earlier. And then Jacob acknowledges something really just spectacular. He says, the blessings on me have surpassed even the blessings that God had given to his father. He realized that he'd been blessed to see the beginnings of the fruition of the promise of God, and, and he asked for those same blessings to be given to Joseph. And then oddly, Jacob gives a very piercing and violent prophecy about Benjamin, who was his favorite even though the, the tribe of Benjamin would be violent, great leaders would come from Benjamin. The first king of Israel, Saul, was a Benjamite. And later there was a, a notable man who was named Saul, who was a Benjamite, violent, killing Christians who God converted, renamed him to Paul. Ultimately, what we see through these verses is that none, none of the children of Israel controlled their own destiny. None of them controlled their own destiny. God held their future. God knew their future, and he held their future. And we can see that through hundreds and hundreds of years, God brought about their future because God holds the future. Each one of them received a different blessing in the end. God, though, exalts each of the sons of Israel. And as we said before, he he writes their names on the gates of heaven so that each of the sons of Israel, God even redeems how terrible a lot of these men were. Because he held their future, they didn't. God had given Joseph the dreams and he brought about all the circumstances to get the people of Israel, Jacob and his family to Egypt. And what, is, what does Genesis show us? What does the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what do, what, what do their lives show us? What do their biographies bear out? They bear out the fact that God holds the future. You don't need to try to figure it out. We don't have to worry or fret. You don't have to wish on Zoltar to figure out your future. We can be sure God's holding the future, and he's not at the whim. Here's the good news for you. If you're wondering, God, I've made some bad decisions, or somebody else has made bad decisions, or my spouse has made bad decisions, or my kids have made bad decisions. God's not at the whim of human decision. Maybe you're worried about your sin, or you fret. God holds the future. He's not at the whim of human sin or weakness. These were weak, sinful men, weren't they? They all were. I mean, Abraham, great man of faith, really failed at times. Isaac, great man of faith, really failed. Jacob, great man of faith, really failed. And yet God holds the future. What are these meant to show us? It's meant to show us that God is bringing about his purposes to, to faithfully redeem a people to himself and that he holds the future, not just to the people in the Bible, but you, do you, are you getting it yet through Genesis? I'm hoping you are. Have you gotten... Have you gotten the message through Genesis? God holds your future. He'll keep us all the way to the promised land. God holds our future. He'll keep us all the way to the promised land. Let's read the last few verses of chapter 49 together. Look down in your Bibles, please. In Verse 29. This is after Jacob's given all the blessings and he's about to die, and he says... Then he commanded them and said to him, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite and the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob... Finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. We have this dramatic ending. I love for a movie to be made about, about Jacob's life. What a dramatic ending! He gives his blessing, he commands him. In faith, he commands them to bury him in the promised land because he knows that God will one day bring them back there. Draws up his feet, breathes his last, and dies. The end of the life of Jacob. He had a mixed life, full of ups and downs, full of success and failures. But how is his biography written? How did God write his His epitaph, I want you to flip over to Hebrews 11. Last time I asked you to flip over, I promise. Last verse we're going to look at this morning. Hebrews 11, verse 21. What we really see is the epitaph, the biography, the final statement on the tombstone of, of Jacob, if you will. His biography is completed. Hebrews 11, verse 21. It's a simple line summing up all of Jacob's life. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob, this very human, very weak, very flawed man, he made the hall of fame in the book of Hebrews. But he didn't make it there for being perfect. Did you notice that? He makes it there for one thing. He's listed here in Hebrews among the heroes of God because he had faith in God's promise and he bowed and worshipped. You get this picture, he's stooping on the side of his bed over over the head of his staff and he's leaning over because he was so feeble and yet in his dying breath, he had faith in the faithful almighty God and that's what's most remarkable about him. Not, Not his success, not his failure, not his strengths, not his weaknesses. What did God count to him as righteousness? His faith in God. That is what was remarkable about Jacob. The final point that we're going to unpack in the next couple of minutes is that faith looks to the promises of God. Faith looks to the promises of God. I asked earlier how would you like somebody to write your biography? What would you like them to write about you? The good news is that for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone, God has already written across our biography the name of another. (laughs) He's written. (laughs) There is one who's come who's greater than Jacob, greater than Joseph, and greater than Judah. Shiloh has come. The man of peace has come, Jesus Christ, and the scepter of rulership lies with him now and forever. And you see, Jesus has come to make peace between God and man. And if you place your faith in Christ, all your foibles, all your weaknesses, all your failings, all your sins have written over the name of Christ. It's as if God has taken... All the contents of the file folder of your entire life. All the, all the things you've done that contained a record of all the bad things you've ever done. Maybe all the things you shouldn't have done as well. All the things you, you wished you had done and didn't do. And he placed all of those things in the file folder of your life. He takes them out and he, and he puts them in the, in the folder that says Jesus. And then he killed him for it. And then God took all the records of perfect obedience of Jesus. All of his complete and total faithfulness to God. And he puts those files into the folder with our name on it. And then he he sets us free. He adopts us as his children. He chooses the unlikely. He chooses the undeserving. He adopts us as as his children. He, He places the blessing of his divine inheritance on us. He crosses things up. <laughs> Julie and I have been reading through that devotional book I gave away earlier. Long story short. With our children. One of the lessons that suggested making a promise to your kids every day for a week. That you would make them an ice cream Sunday, And yet making them wait all week long. To have an ice cream sundae. And um, I, I, I didn't forget about my promise. Because my kids kept reminding me about it. But. I wouldn't have forgotten anyway. Um, so for every day of that week, I told him, you're going to get the biggest Sunday you want with all the toppings you want, any toppings you want on there that we, can, that we have um, within reason. You know, nothing, nothing like fish or anything on there. But, you know, good things on the Sunday. And um, so every day I said, do you believe that you're really going to get ice cream? Yeah, Dad, we, we believe you. Do, you. do you believe I'm really going to give you what I promised you? Yeah, Dad, we believe you. Okay, great. You're going to get it Monday. Monday, you're going to have that Sunday. And, and they believed me. They trusted in my word because they knew I'd been faithful in the past. And, and then when Monday came and we made them this huge Sunday and spread the table out with all these toppings. And it was a, it was a big feast of sugar. And, uh, and they were excited. And I said, okay, guys. Did you trust me? Did you believe I was really going to give this to you? They said, yeah, of course, Dad, because we, we, we know you, and we knew you, you'd do that. And, it, and it, helped them, it helped them understand what it looks like to trust God for that preferable future that he promises to us that we don't see. And sometimes it seems like a long time coming. But for God, we don't get ice cream Sunday. He promises us that he's invited us to the wedding feast uh, of the Lamb, that one day he's going to spread a table for us and we can know, yeah, it's coming, even though we don't see it here and now. Jacob trusted in God's word, even though he didn't see it come about fully, because he trusted in God's character. He knew that God had been faithful in the past. How was Genesis meant to function for us? Next week, Aaron gets to close with probably the, the best passage in Genesis, which talks about Joseph, really, understanding that, that really God was at work through everything. For us, we can have faith in God to keep us all the way to the promised land. Do you believe that this morning? Do you know that God can keep you all the way to the promised land even though you might not understand how he's doing it? I want the band to go ahead and come up right now if you will. Um, they're going to go ahead and sing a song for us. So, If everybody in the band will go ahead and come up. and I hope the song's going to minister to you want you to listen to the words that are being sung. And to begin with, she's going to sing solo so that um, we can just listen to the words and have them minister to us, and then we're going to close together in a hymn, and Matt will have a stand-up when, uh, when we do the hymn. Right, Matt? Excellent. So the question, though, for us, how do we move forward as Christians? How do we move forward with our flawed past? We're aware that our biography doesn't seem too attractive, and yet God uses all those things to draw attention to himself, to give glory to himself and to his faithfulness. God even uses the crummy things to draw attention to himself. So how do we move forward? We're called to forget what, look, what, what's, what lies behind us now. Forget what lies behind you now. And, and yet look forward to that day. Living the, with a long-term mind, trusting in the faithfulness of God to redeem our failures, our mistakes, our circumstances, our, our hardship, our pain, our suffering, our success. You see, God is always faithful. Do you believe that? It's, it's not always easy to believe. God is always faithful. He was faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He was faithful to the children of the covenant. He was faithful to bring the Messiah. Shiloh has come. He'll be faithful to each and every one of his children today and it can be written on our epitaph like it was written on Jacob's that that we were people who placed our faith in God and bowed our heads in worship. Mm. We can trust in God who's (laughs) called us to keep us all the way, all the way to the promised land. He's always been faithful. He will be again.